Excess for Podcasts is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more podcasts about movies, nostalgia, and pop culture, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Hey everybody, and welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise, starting with Giant Size X-Men number one, and make our way forward through the misadventures of Marvel's Merry Mutants. I'm your host, Nico. And I'm your host, Jonah. And you know what, man? It feels so good to be back to an episode where we're going to cover an issue of Uncanny X-Men proper. Yes, I'm so excited. I was happy with our little detour. Well, not too happy. But I'm excited to get back and see what happens to these mutants. So for those of you who've been following along, we decided to take a quick detour through the rest of the Marvel Universe to provide some of the necessary context to understand the bigger picture that the X-Men was painting. While we enjoyed covering Uncanny, we thought it would be beneficial to the reading experience. Ultimately... It really wasn't, but we got some great moments out of it, like Nightcrawler meeting Spider-Man in an issue of Amazing Spider-Man we knew nothing about. We also saw some real, real terrible Marvel team-up appearances. Ooh, those, those hurt. Didn't like those very much. But we're back. Jonah, tell me, do you feel smarter, stronger, wiser, older, sadder for having read all of that Marvel team-up? Absolutely. I would be quite shocked to find that the marketing idea behind the Marvel team-ups actually worked as intended. I really can't imagine it did. And so I keep making this big deal about our return to Uncanny X-Men, and I'm happy to tell you we will only be covering two issues of Uncanny X-Men today. Oh, we're in for more Marvel team-up. I know, I know I promised we weren't, but we kind of are. First, though, we're going to make a brief detour into Iron Fist. Yes, that Iron Fist canceled and destroyed the Marvel Netflix universe Iron Fist. We're going to take a look at Iron Fist 14 and 15 by Chris Claremont and John Byrne, no less, for an early appearance of Sabretooth, as well as the Uncanny X-Men making a weird stop in Iron Fist. From there, we're going to cover Uncanny X-Men 109 and 110 before covering the requisite classic associated, which is going to be classic number 16. And then, yep, like I promised... We're going to do a quick stop off in Marvel team up number 69 and 70. It hurts. I'm sad. My brain's broken. But it's okay because we still have the two uncannies. And while one of them really sucks, one of them is really great. And that's what matters here. One of the most interesting things about this episode is that almost all of the stories are Claremont and Byrne collaborations, with the exception of Uncanny 110, which has fill-in art by Tony DiZuniga, and Classic X-Men 16, which has John Bolton on art as usual. So Jonah, now that we know who's done them, you want to tell us a little bit more about these issues? Iron Fist 1415. Iron Fist and Colleen Wing struggle in the mountains, the victims of an out-of-control number of flashbacks, and the furry menace known as Sabretooth. A lot of filler later, and Sabretooth is defeated, Iron Fist triumphant, and the issue ends in time to have nothing to do with the next issue. In the series finale, Danny faces down an unknown assailant who has been plaguing him all this time in an effort to steal his powers. An unusually pathetic and lovelorn Wolverine happens upon Danny in the apartment of his girlfriend, Misty Knight, shared with Jean Grey, Phoenix of the X-Men, leading the X-Men to brawl with Iron Fist. No matter the victor, the loser is Iron Fist, who is muscled out of his own final issue. Uncanny X-Men 109. The X-Men finally return home from space and the Marvel team-up annual with Spider-Man, and I guess Iron Fist. Things go smoothly as families and lovers are reunited until a face from Logan's past, Weapon Alpha attacks. In the ensuing melee, Moira McTaggart is the victim of Alpha's fire, causing him to retreat at his error. Uncanny X-Men. 
X-Men 110. The X-Men were playing ball in this old script they used to help with the transition to monthly. A cheap Colossus knockoff attacks the X-Men with their own danger room in a story even X-Men Classic didn't want to touch. Marvel team up 6970. Havoc and Polaris are strolling cliffside when they are attacked. Polaris is sent off the cliff while Havoc is captured. While being the co-star of this Marvel team up, Havoc does very little in the events of this copy comic of X-Men 55-57, where the living Pharaoh uses Havoc as a battery to become the living monolith. Polaris comes soon and attempts to get help for Havoc from the X-Men, but they don't answer, leading her to call the Beast about both. Beast heads to investigate the X-Mansion while Thor sets off to investigate Havoc's dangers. Alright, Spider-Man is in this. Thor and Spidey will and the bad guy. Everything's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Classic 16. A teenage banshee is running from the cops when he's saved by a motorcycle-riding Banff lady who steals his heart and the heart of his older cousin, Black Tom. They both date her, and then an accident leads Sean to send Tom on a date with the woman in his steed, leading her to, I don't know, pick him? No one's really sure. Okay, so that's what's in him. Now let's talk about him. The first thing I noticed with the cover of Iron Fist 14, White Snow, White Doom, Sabertooth. It is the most over-the-top opening I have ever seen. For It's just that, oh, God, why? I completely agree, and it's so ironic considering this issue is such a lull and has very little action in it. Oh, man, yeah, and what's weird is, like, half of it is action, but, like, so little of it is, like, complete action. But when you when you look at the first page, it's a Claremont and Byrne production, and the first thing you think is, well, okay, maybe nobody understood back then because they didn't. They really weren't Chris Claremont and John Byrne yet, but there's moments in this script where I'm like, ah, tiny little smidgens of Claremont and Byrne are kind of... The beginning is not that part, though. The beginning is really rough. Jonah, I was really confused by this opening. How were you with it? It was a really confusing issue that it starts off in the middle of what the story is supposed to be and then backtracks to what happens before it and then immediately after it backtracks and we go through all these flashbacks, it goes to what is happening in the present. It's not good. It's really a roundabout way of trying to tell this story. Yeah, I found myself really confused. After I read it, I had to turn to Jonah and ask him for a little bit of uh, his opinion on how to clarify this. It starts with Colleen and Danny trying to survive. They've taken a hit. They're on the run in the snow, and Colleen's just about ready to collapse. So Danny's carrying her, and he flashes back to several days earlier when he fought this shadowy figure who tried to, like, steal his chi. And then it cuts back to now... And then it cuts back to the next day or the previous day. And there's just so much cutting back and forth. And I understand that it, it, you know, it's just a storytelling device and we will catch up eventually. But it took me a little too long to catch up. And I don't mean me personally. There was no reason to tell this story in media res, then flashback, then come back forward, then flashback again to come back to the present. It was just a few too many layers. And I found it a little... Off-putting. I also found off-putting that it took me forever to find Colleen's name in the first few pages. I just kept not being sure who this woman was. And I kind of feel like for a story that only has two characters on it, it's not a lot to ask for one of them to say the other one's name when clearly the main character is half of the characters. I completely agree. I also have a problem with how late Sabretooth appears in this issue. He doesn't appear until halfway of the story and it's really reminiscent of Marvel Team Up and why we think they're written so poorly. You cannot have an, an issue with your villain only appearing halfway in, especially when that villain's name is on the cover. It doesn't help that this is barely an appearance by Sabretooth. Sabretooth feels completely off. He's described as basically a mercenary who will steal anything. That's not Sabretooth. Sabretooth is a guy who will 
kill anything. He will murder anything. That's more saber-tooth speed. This, like, oh, he's just a pirate. No, he's not a pirate. He's not a fucking pirate. That's a really weird... It was it was an off take, but there's something I want to get to uh, from before we got to Sabretooth for a moment. There's a there's a moment where Colleen and Danny are talking about how they're sharing their chi, and it's, it's nuts because especially I, I wrote it down because it definitely took me by surprise. She wakes up and they're in this like little chateau. They're tapping that chi, right? He says to her, "Tap those memories, Colleen. It'll be hard, sure, but you can do it." Wait. And it then tells us that this mind meld, this chi fusion that they've got going on, has been happening since issue six. Issue six. These people have been mind-soul melded where they're sharing each other's memories since issue six. This is issue 14. You think that would have come up in the snow? I don't know. There's just something weird. I just don't get it. I just don't get it. I don't get it. Absolutely. I know sometimes when you're doing... When you're writing, you don't always need to call back to previous things, but especially something as important as that, you're introducing this concept way late, and while most readers aren't picking up in the middle of arcs or at the very tail end of a series like we are, it's still not very new reader friendly. There is a moment I do want to point out that I really, really appreciate about Colleen, and it says a lot about her characterization from very little. Uh, Colleen and... Danny are talking about Misty and Colleen calls Danny out and she says to him, women are their own people. They're not these goddesses or objects you view them as. She is her own person and what you did is kind of shitty. And I really appreciate that. I agree, especially when compared to some of the moments we had in Marvel Team Up where the characters, our heroes, were engaged in sexual attack, essentially. It's great to see Claremont treat these women with a bit more respect and to have the respect for women come from women. I think that's very important. Now, my favorite moment in the action, it's kind of twofold. I actually like how Sabretooth exposes Iron Fist. Iron Fist and Colleen have escaped by taking down two of the attackers sent after them and wearing their clothes and infiltrating Sabretooth's base. Sabretooth being hypersensitive. I'm going to just make it that Claremont always knew what he was doing, even though I don't think so. It swipes at the guy he thinks is probably Iron Fist, and it reveals the chest tattoo, and aw, shit, now it's on. And then later on, Sabretooth lures Danny out to fight him further by luring him outside as the sun is illuminating all of the snow and it blinds Danny and it's really great. I really enjoyed I really enjoyed those two moments. I have to agree with you, especially the ending fight between Danny and Sabretooth. I think my only complaint about that fight is Sabretooth actually comes up with a pretty clever plan to try to overwhelm Danny, but then Danny says that Sabretooth only relies on brute strength to defeat his enemies. It's a little counterproductive of your characterizing as Sabretooth as a very clever villain, then immediately as to just a brute force killer. Oh, that's a great point. I hadn't even considered it that way. I completely agree with that. 100%, because I even just commented on how clever I thought Sabretooth's actions were. Totally spot on. I did also think it was really kind of nice the way they showed Danny's training coming through in the fight sequence that, to him, any insurmountable beast is an insurmountable beast. I really enjoyed that aspect of it. But the more you point that out, it does kind of actually sour the... The battle for me. Hmm. Well, I don't think there was too much more in Iron Fist 14. It brings us to Iron Fist 15, which starts as if Iron Fist 14 never happened. 
Yeah, it's so weird that this is where Claremont went with the next issue and how to end it all. It's a weird... I, I can't even describe it. I don't really know the words to convey to, uh, to you guys what is actually going on as to why it starts here. It's not good. It's just like a generic back alley fight. We start with them in a life or death situation on a mountain facing a mercenary. And the next thing you know, we're just kind of having like a regular ninja fight in the, I mean, you know, in the Marvel Universe, a regular ninja fight in an alley. And then we see the figure that came after Danny in the first flashback in the end media res start of the last issue who's trying to steal his chi. Those of you who have seen the Iron Fist on Netflix or have read the Brubaker Fraction Aja run of Iron Fist would recognize him as Steel Serpent or Davos. But at this point, that's not established yet. And it's kind of left dangling. He shows up here and then it's not really retouched at any point. They just kind of drop it. And it kind of seemed like it was important having it come up in multiple issues. I don't know. There was That was kind of the common theme here. Danny had plots that he needed to solve in the final issue, but there wasn't room for it because a lovelorn Wolverine was touching his heart hole in the alley looking at Danny's girlfriend's house. Yeah, no, this is... It's a very weird issue for multiple reasons, but one of my biggest complaints about this issue is that it feels like two separate mini-stories printed at the same time. You have a in conflict that Danny faces of someone trying to steal his power, then immediately it's thrown out, not talked about, in the second half, where we see Wolverine brewing over why he can't have Jean, in, but she's not even in her apartment, he doesn't know that yet. And it's going to lead to a very weird and a very clunky fight sequence that I have a multitude of problems with. Again, it's going back to Marvel's continuous use of the theme of hero versus hero. And this hero versus hero bit does pop back up throughout this issue, although I will say it's probably more lighthearted here than we see it elsewhere. To give a little context, Jean Grey has been sharing an apartment with Misty Knight. We know that from Uncanny X-Men. Misty Knight is Iron Fist's girlfriend. Misty Knight is also currently on assignment infiltrating Bushmaster's organization, so she's not even in this story directly. She has a few pages and then she's dropped abruptly. Meanwhile, Logan's not dating Jean. Jean's with Scott. Logan's just sort of sitting outside of her apartment watching it like a real big-time creeper. The whole thing feels kind of awkward. It feels really uncomfortable. And Danny has come to Misty's apartment to rest up after getting injured. And Logan attacks Danny by destroying Jean's apartment to defend Jean, who's not even there. And, okay... This is where things get really interesting. One of the things we talked about in the Marvel Team-Up episode was that the annual was actually released in December of 76, even though it didn't fall until April of 78. This issue also kind of has a weird falling-in-place moment. Wolverine is wearing the Fang costume he got from 108. It's so uncomfortable forcing this into this moment in canon. I don't really love putting 14 and 15 before 109. Ultimately, I feel like 108 was such a big climactic moment. There's all these little moments in canon sort of shoehorned in between 108 and 109 because 108 made the X-Men a hot property. Everybody wanted to be part of it. It's just such a sudden change. I I don't know. I also enjoy the rest of the X-Men showing up in the form of Nightcrawler and Colossus, but I'm really not interested. This is people fighting for no reason. They're supposed to be... Save us, Jonah, save us. I don't even know if I can save us from this situation. 
I know I can excuse a hero versus hero fight if they don't know each other, but it's I can't I still can't find myself be able to excuse this conflict between them. My one of my big problems with this is that in the conflict of in the beginning of this issue, we see Danny have his power basically sapped away from him, but he is still able to basically kick the ex, the ass of X Men, and I this is an a problem I have with the X Men is that they go through the montage of training and months of training to fight like a team and they just get their ass kicked by them because they never fight as a team and it's like you were training to do this multiple times through months and months of this yet you can't do this in any of the battles we've seen so far i really am getting tired of the x-men needing to mend as a team together part of it is they've only been together since uncanny 94 or so if you disclude the weird, we all hate each other, 48 hours of Giant Size X-Men number one. But the in-universe time does reference it as over a year, over a year and a half. I do need the X-Men to be a solidified unit by this point. As far as Iron Fist having his chi sapped, I think it's one of those things like your chi eventually just like re-reserves up. I think you just kind of like heal your chi back up like your like your health bar if you're playing a video game. Just keep walking on the world map. Everything will turn out fine. One of the things that threw me about this issue is Storm, number one, gets hit in the face with a pie, and number two, Banshee can have lines in this. This means Banshee had lines in Marvel Team-Up Annual and the Marvel Team-Up issue with Spider-Man and then here. It seems like Banshee can have dialogue anywhere but Uncanny X-Men, especially the arc about his family. This is too much Banshee for one issue. It feels very one-sided. Jonah, how how did you feel reading more Banshee than you have read in Uncanny yet? He still doesn't have a personality outside of his accent, so even the lines he gets don't even matter. Um, yeah, it's a funny little moment of Storm getting angry with a pie stone in her face. I think it's kind of ironic because Storm isn't the most playful character as you've seen so far. So it's kind of that theme of you hit a you hit a very serious character with a pie and it's supposed to be really funny. It's meh. I really agree. And I think what's really interesting is that you and I keep coming back to the same thing. This doesn't really feel like much of an Iron Fist issue. So it almost feels like this was like a lighthearted leftover X-Men issue and they shoehorned a few Iron Fist details into it. We are going to come up on a few more odd X-Men issues this episode. But first, let's finish this guy off. Gene comes in and Phoenix moms everybody, and then they all just kind of hang out. Just, they just hang out, you guys. Oh, nope, we're done fighting. Everybody have a good day. Gene's here. Gene's here in the day, saved. It was an awfully quick conclusion to an issue I had no real relationship with. Jonah, if you don't have anything more to share on Iron Fist 14 and 15, I'm happy to iron forward through and take a look at Uncanny 109. Yeah, I completely agree. We could just go to Uncanny now. Uncanny 109 was a really great issue. No argument here. I love 109. Now, what's really interesting is I feel like there was a time where we concerned there were too many X-Men and then they wouldn't stop dropping like flies. But it's been such a weird journey to this place. From Giant Size X-Men number one through 94 to 108, we're about 18 issues into Uncanny X-Men proper and I can't believe the lineup or what they've been through. We have Storm and Wolverine. He's here dressed as Fang, like in our previous appearance. Colossus, Xavier, Lalandra, Cyclops, Phoenix, Nightcrawler, Moira, and Banshee. And it's not 13, but it's definitely 10 regular characters characters plus everybody we have running around in the background and it's been incredible to get here jonah you went from not knowing any of these x-men to knowing so many fucking x-men dude tell me 
getting to this lineup, getting to this page that opens the issue. How do you feel? I feel pretty good. You know, they're really, you can only really go up from where you started. And I think the X-Men are on in a very severe incline on their roller coaster up for their journey. We ended on a really great note of the introduction of the Phoenix as a being and an entity into this world and into Gene. And I think that gave us some really good creative and interesting characterization for how everyone in the team is dealing with it. And now we get to 109, and it's a really interesting issue because the X-Men feel like real people in this issue. They come off as like, oh, I've met these people before. I know them. I've done this. I 1,000% agree. This is the point at which I feel like the X-Men are now the X-Men. And I don't know if it's because John Byrne is here and now everything's okay, the Byrne is here, but... It's definitely a good look for the X-Men. We don't just start with characters reuniting. We start with one of the things that Jonah and I have pointed out has felt very much lacking. Banshee and Moira's relationship has felt sort of implied until this point, but there is no questioning it. Banshee is macking on Moira right off the bat. It's a lot of fun and a great way to come back for those characters seeing them be in love. And then we get to something that ruins everything. Storm, of course, has to immediately get naked to water her plants. Yeah, Add another tick to that counter that we have running. It's not needed. She can just be happy to see her plan. She could just be happy to provide them rain and water and sustenance. She does not need to be naked. It was just an excuse. Storm is kind of removable in this issue. She doesn't actually do much. And the fact that that really all she does is just get naked is really disappointing. Well, she does do one other thing, but it's kind of in the past. Storm is part of Jean's very complicated series of flashbacks in this issue. After the Iron Fist issue by Claremont, where we talked about how some of that had some imbalances we weren't crazy about. Here, Jean, while talking to her parents, flashes back to 108 and 109, saying goodbye to Corsair and the rest of the Starjammers. I don't know. I don't think it's a bad moment. It does feel a little bit like it comes way too late, and I would have almost maybe preferred to start the issue with this. But if we had done that, then there would have been no convenient way to shoehorn in all of those appearances across the rest of the Marvel Universe. I do think it's interesting that you pointed out that you feel that Storm doesn't do much here, and I agree. Jean, however, of course, has nonstop things to do. Jean's parents showing fear is a really important step in Jean's transformation. She's been Phoenix for about nine issues now. We've gotten a lot of responses to her transformation, especially since 103. But here, her fear tells us so much of how far into this new person she's become. I've enjoyed Jean's transformation. Jonah, this is my 80th time reading Jean's, one of Jean's many transformations. Where are you in this story? Jean's transformation. She started out as the kind of ex-woman they could leave behind, and now she's the center of the team. How have you felt watching Jean transform over the last 18 issues? I've personally really enjoyed seeing Jean tackle becoming the Phoenix. We talk about it a little bit in our recap episode for the new year. But it's really good writing that I really enjoy seeing the struggle that Jean deals with becoming a powerful entity, having this oversurgence of new power and what this fallout is like and what it's like proceeding from where she's going. Having to tell her parents that she is the Phoenix now is a really great moment to show that, even though we don't hear that dialogue between them. There's three panels of it, and in three panels you see um, literally a story in and of itself. They managed to use that to contrast Scott's situation. At one point, 
Jean informs Scott that he doesn't need to worry about it, that she can handle the situation with her parents just fine. Scott's feeling kind of lonely and a bit out of it, in part because he hasn't had much contact with his brother Alex. Alex, better known as part-time X-Man Havoc, has been off on Muir Island with his girlfriend Polaris, also a part-time X-Man and sometimes daughter of Magneto. Moira informs Scott that she's heard from Alex recently and he's doing okay, but that kind of bothered me personally, and I'm actually pretty glad that we wind up seeing Havoc later on in Marvel Team-Up 6970, although ultimately, you might wish you hadn't. Just after Scott's brooding moment, we get the first hints of the main narrative promised on the cover in the form of an interlude. But before the main narrative shows up, we get a cute moment between Kurt and Pete. Jonah, do you have anything about this cute moment between Colossus and Nightcrawler? I appreciate Nightcrawler being flirty, he's using his German, it's nice, it's cute, it's personality, it just shows off how charming he is. And then we get the brooding Goliath Colossus, who's like, duh, I can't write well to my family, I don't know what to do. And then Kurt, in a way to kind of try to cheer him up, invites him out on a double date, but Colossus instead wants to third wheel with Moira and Sean, and I think that's, I think that was the poor choice, especially what does happen. It's a weird moment, because, you know, Colossus is this big, hunky dude, and everybody kind of thinks of him as this big, hunky dude, but he's kind of like the wet blanket of the X-Men in a lot of ways. I do want to point out that this scene is an important scene, because X-Men Classic updates the dialogue. Kurt says that the Wagners were all normal-looking humans, but in the X-Men Classic, classic version, he says he's told they were all normal-looking humans. This is because Kurt's parentage is going to become something that Claremont can't wait to address later on. The other changes in this issue for the X-Men Classic Edition are going to include a few more Lalandra scenes and... A little bit more from Weapon Alpha, because by this point, he had already been established in his own title, Alpha Flight, which we will be covering later on. There wasn't too much more in the buildup of this issue for me. I haven't felt specifically like these growing moments were necessarily the most important. I really love the moment between Logan and Storm. Logan is going to go on a hunt, and automatically Storm assumes he's going to kill something. But he's like, nah... I just want to catch something. It's about the act of being one with nature, and it's that that transitions us to the Weapon Alpha attack. Now, I believe, Jonah, you don't actually know anything about what's coming with this character, Weapon Alpha. You're not familiar of his actual relationship with Wolverine, nor with the future of this character in the Marvel Universe. No, I... This was my first... Uh, ever encounter with Weapon Alpha, so it's pretty interesting. Though I do know more than someone reading this during the time about Wolverine, I have a very good basis for an assumption of how they might be related based on Wolverine, but I don't want to spoil anything because we are nowhere near that yet. But yeah, this is my first appearance of him. Well, the character that Weapon Alpha will go on to become is going to become so important to Wolverine's backstory, he's going to inspire a 130-issue series, as well as numerous additional volumes of that title. Numerous people will wear their costume that Weapon Alpha comes to represent, and it will become a mainstay of the X-Men for about 20 or 30 years before they gave up trying to constantly relaunch it. The fight itself is pretty interesting, and it's juxtaposed with this weird sort of half-naked by the pool kind of sequence. It's really interesting because some of the X-Men are just lounging, relaxing, showing off their hot bods, and then here's Weapon Alpha kind of smashing Wolverine around and punching him in the head over and over again, taking him by surprise. Yeah, it's actually a pretty good fight scene. I like that juxtaposition. I like that narrative of playing off of this supposed to be a calm, like, 
relaxing moment for the X-Men and now it's this all-out brawl. Another reason why I really do like this issue is because we're getting more information about Logan. As for the X-Men that we do, the new X-Men that we have, Storm is the only person who's gotten proper backstory sequences and we only know a little bit about everybody else if you're only going off uncanny. So it's really nice to have a different character and one who a lot of people do love. I don't know at the time how many how people were reacting to Logan, but I know that a lot of people do like Logan. So it was really nice to have a character, a new character, get that backstory information. Completely. They didn't tell us much about him. They told us he knows this person, and this person has been dispatched to kind of reclaim him in the name of the Canadian government. He is military property, and he just walked away. That's a really interesting choice. I did, however, hate Moira being the victim of Weapon Alpha's redirected energy blast. It didn't feel like I needed to see a female character be victimized. There was no reason it could have been a male character. Banshee's powers don't exactly make him immune to getting hit by lasers, so it would have been just as easy to see a male character be downed. I guess it's because they wanted to show us the emotional connection by reminding us that Banshee was emotionally involved with Moira from the beginning of the issue, but there's no reason it couldn't have been Banshee that got injured and Moira who jumped in after him. I did like seeing Weapon Alpha fly away. It was almost the anti-Marvel team-up. He was dispatched to fight people and said, nah, I don't want to keep fighting. It actually shows how smart of a person why Weapon Alpha is employed by the government. He states because he doesn't know the powers, he's not going to fight a fight with mutants because he has no idea what they're capable of. He's vaguely aware of who Banshee is because he's on flyers in Ireland, but he doesn't know of Storm and he doesn't know of Colossus. The X-Men haven't been revealed yet. He wasn't expecting this on his mission. It's really a smart choice. I don't appreciate it being Moira as well. I think it could have been anybody else, but they wanted to have that moment. I think it's also because Weapon Alpha wasn't expecting to hit a civilian. It's fine if he hits a mutant because mutants are hated, but when you hit a human you're compromising your position. And even if you decontextualize that mutants are hated, which I agree, there's definitely getting to be that point of anti-mutant hysteria in the book, Mac was not sent to hurt Moira. Moira cannot be collateral damage. That is not who Mac is. I all in all found this to be a really rewarding issue. And you know what? Can we just blow through the classic it's attached to really fast? Because I don't find that to be a rewarding issue and we can just get talking about Banshee out of the way. So... I don't know. It's everything that Jonah said in the issue description. Banshee's riding his motorcycle, trying to get away from a cop, or he's just running from a cop, I forget, gets on a motorcycle with this chick, and then, I don't know, it's like he shares this woman with his cousin. It feels so like women are property, and it's such a problem. Jonah, talk to me. You don't really even understand that Banshee has a personality because he doesn't get it until much later. Was this issue anything for you? No, it's trying to paint Banshee as this wild child on the run from the cops because he's bad, and then he finds a bad female to hang around with, and then he has to fight over her with his cousin because no one can let anyone just have anything. It's like, I don't, I don't like it. It doesn't paint Banshee or his cousin in a really good light. It's very misogynistic, though woman in question i don't even know her name she's not she's just removable she doesn't make a lasting impression if you were going to give us a story from the past i actually would have preferred a black tom story as to why he cracked and betrayed his family that would have been way more interesting than this 
Her name is Maeve Rourke. What's weird is the way in which she is important existed well before she did. This is one of those examples of where classic was used to explain something that never really needed explaining. I have a weird relationship with that. I don't understand why there is this huge drive to always put every single detail in. At this point, I understand it's because you only had so many characters you were probably allowed to work with, and Banshee was somebody who definitely didn't get the shake he deserved in the original run. I gained nothing from it. I didn't really learn anything from it. I don't feel better for discussing it. I don't feel better for reading it. It was pretty, and that's about it. Uh, I completely agree. Uh, Nico is a writer, and I do enjoy writing myself, and something that I think a lot of writers are taught, no matter what medium you're using, you don't need to spoon-feed your audience. You're allowed to have your audience assume things and gather things from context clues. Especially in comic books, you have art at your disposal. You You can use picture along with your words to help paint a narrative. You don't need to literally force feed information to your readers. And speaking of force-feeding information to your readers, let's just knock this one out, 110. If 109 was this incredible relief in a sea of obnoxious Marvel team-ups that we've had to barrel through, 110 is kind of the other side of the coin. It's a bit of a letdown, but it's nice that these are both self-contained issues, at least, after some of the arcs we had. That said, this is the most obvious fill-in. Everything about it feels a little bit off. Nothing feels quite right. The villain doesn't even make sense. He's a guy named... Warhammer? Is that it? Warhammer? And he just looks like Colossus. He's like a cheap Colossus ripoff, but a little bit bluer. There's nothing to this issue that makes it special in any way. Other than, this is the first time I can think of where the X-Men are playing baseball. X-Men playing baseball is a time-honored X-Men tradition, to the point where the X-Men have even sold X-Men baseball jerseys. It's a common thing. The team loves to get together and celebrate being alive. They have each other. They're a family. In many ways, it's a school. They have a good time together, and baseball is one of the classic hallmarks of that for Chris Claremont. After Chris Claremont would leave, many other writers would continue to have the X-Men play sports together. It's just fun. What's weird is, it kind of feels like the New Mutants never have like a fun teen league that they can play in, and I guess it's because they have superpowers. That's another conversation for another day. Unless Classic has its way, in which case the New Mutants have already had 34 appearances. Actually, the villain's name is Warhawk. It doesn't matter. The name doesn't make sense for what he is. As Nico pointed out, it's a really obvious issue you can tell was filler. Filler is not bad. You're allowed to have filler. Sometimes you need to take break between creative stories and arcs. That's not an issue. The problem comes when your filler is bad. A lot of what seems like filler issues for the X-Men at this point in time is having a problem in their danger room. This like How many times has this been a plot? There's been fighting in there because they're trapped inside of it. It's not good. It, it's weird. I don't like it. There's not much to say. I do agree with Nico's points that I actually enjoy the baseball scenes because we keep talking about the X-Men being a family. And that's kind of what family members do. You play around with each other. You have these big family outings and moments. And seeing them play baseball with their powers is actually pretty interesting. One of my biggest complaints about this issue, because we've already said the only good thing, the baseball, is the first three characters that are knocked unconscious are the women. Moira is knocked unconscious by Warhawk to be let in. Gene is put down in a method that would never really work for me. And he says, oh, that was enough to put down an elephant bull or a bull elephant or whatever the fuck, but I don't care. She's the phoenix. She can take on Fire Lord. I do not believe this random Colossus knockoff has a gun that's going to knock her down. 
and Storm is taken out. It felt really disingenuous. And the ending, this dumb ending, this very... Logan is like, we're not going to let him get us, bub. We're going to get these guys next time. And I'm just... There's nothing about this story that works for me. X-Men Classic didn't reprint it. And we have talked about the depths X-Men Classic is willing to go to make a dollar... There's nothing about this issue that's technically out of the run the way a number of the other issues they have skipped have been. This was just sort of a fill-in issue. It's weird that we lose out on the first baseball story, but other than that, I don't think there's anything about this issue worth discussing other than that baseball bit. I actually do want to touch on your talking about Jean. It's really weird that she's taken out so early and so quickly because in later... Well, it's more in a classic issue that I'm, I have a point about it. I don't want to spoil what the classic issue is going to be about, but there comes a, po- a moment where the Phoenix protects Jean from something. Why didn't that happen here? It's a really weird thing to have a power set for Jean that the entity inside of her will protect her, but not in this weird, random moment. Warhawk also shoots her twice and says two bullets will kill someone. I don't know about that, but it's really weird. You know what? In a lot of ways, the less said about this issue, the better. So unless there's anything holding us back, it's time to take a look at those two people that Moira had a chance to talk to off panel in X-Men 109. Havoc and Polaris, who just can't seem to get a break, even when they're trying to recuperate on the embattered island that they seem to hang out on all the time. I don't know. But so, Jonah, I actually don't think you realized this going into this, but this is almost a verbatim retelling of an existing story. Were you aware of that when you read it? No, I did not. But I also thought you were going to say, I didn't know if this is your first time knowing that this is Polaris is the mistress of magnetism. Because she says it so often. She has a horrible habit of saying it as much as she can. It's one of those things. A lot of these characters aren't given personalities. They're given catchphrases and accents. And we just have to roll with it where we can and hope for the best other times. Here, Havoc seems like a plot device or a passenger in something he's supposed to be the co-star in. Now, this is not the first time we have complained about a misrepresentation of the starring power of the Marvel team-up series. Here, we have Havoc being labeled as the co-star, but I think he actually spends, of the like 20 pages of issue, 15 of them unconscious or tied up. He has one moment where he's like, I'm not a boy anymore! And that's something I have touched upon with Alex, and I can finally talk about it a little bit now that there's something on paper. The thing that makes Havoc different from Cyclops, it's really interesting. Cyclops was originally called Slim. When Havoc was introduced, he was pretty slender, but they made him bigger a little bit sooner. Havoc sort of matured into this guy who had a lot to prove. His older brother, Cyclops, was of course the golden child of the X-Men. And Havoc needed to prove that he was just as big and strong and powerful a man as his brother. This does sort of give Havoc kind of like, look at my huge dick syndrome. Havoc cannot stop proving to people he's the biggest man you know. This ultimately does hurt the character in a lot of ways. It makes many of his relationships toxic. And it doesn't help that Havoc initial relationship with Polaris was dogged by Iceman's secret love for Polaris. It's been an unfortunate ride for Alex. It doesn't really get better. He becomes the subject of a very hot discussion when Uncanny Avengers began. But I'm jumping decades here. Let's talk about this terrible appearance of Havoc. Jonah, this two-parter. Were you excited to be back to Marvel Team-Up? Was this just everything you wanted to go back to Marvel Team-Up? No. And it's really unfortunate because as much as I love Spider-Man, the first issue really, it's 
it's so bad. It is so bad. I can't excuse it. A lot of it is so, like, happenstance on how this plot is going. It's a very terrible plot. And as Nico said, Havoc doesn't do much in terms of being a hero and fighting alongside Spider-Man. How can you call him a co-star when he doesn't do anything, where he's just the battery for the living Pharaoh? I, I don't appreciate that. If you're going to have a character, use them. Don't claim you're using them that they're a co-star of something if you're not even going to give them much dialogue. And you know what? That hits on something really excellent. So to rebound this back to the last episode where we covered X-Men and Marvel Team-Up, we talked about how the first issue of that three-parter that follows the annual has Banshee stick with Spider-Man, but the X-Men are actually in a good portion of that issue anyway. Hulk is consistently in it, and then there's Wood God, I guess... But the one on the cover is a Marvel team-up between Spider-Man and Hulk. The only person that truly teams up with Spider-Man in that whole issue is Banshee. There's such a sense of misrepresentation to these issues. It's almost like they get permission to use a character and then figure out a way to use them later on. Spider-Man just sort of happens to get involved in this story. He just overhears the whole thing. It's really annoying. What's bizarre is Beast is more directly involved by plot. Polaris calls up the X-Men, they don't answer. So she calls Beast and she's like, Beast, help me, the X-Men are missing and Havoc's missing and I'm having a real bad day having gotten thrown into the ocean. Beast is like, oh, all right, sure. And Thor's like, what havest thou up to with thee? And Beast is like, oh, well, you see, I'm going to go off to find my friends the X-Men, but I was never particularly close with Havoc, so I'm just going to let him die. Um, Thor, uh, what are you doing? Do you want to go check on my friend Havoc? He is currently a very big battery, and he's hanging out with Spider-Man. And Thor is just like, Hammer! And that's what they do. So that's how Thor gets involved in the next issue. It really didn't do much for me, especially because the end is the living monolith. The living pharaoh just transforms into the living monolith. That's like his bit, right? So what I'm telling you here is essentially the issue ends with this big chalkboard having been covered in chalk the whole issue. And at the end, somebody goes, and you can erase it. That's literally the living pharaoh turning into the living monolith. He has one shtick. It's use Havoc as a battery and then turn into a much bigger version of himself. It's, I don't, and like... Then the next issue was just a big fight sequence. And not even a very good big fight sequence. Jonah, do you have anything on this? Because I'm literally... No. Really, all I have is a comment, again, on a little bit of writing style. You know, coming into this and just reading it as a reader and a fan. Again, we talk about the spoon feeding. You don't always need to have a character's thoughts be about something you're showing. My only really comment on like an example of this is Thor blocking an energy blast from the living pharaoh. Or living monolith, I'm sorry. And he says it, but it's already in the art. You don't need to tell me something you're showing me. You really don't need to do that. I don't like how this issue ends, especially because Havoc doesn't do anything afterwards. He doesn't get, like, his one last punch on the bad guy. He actually doesn't get to do that. He doesn't get a little bit of, like, vengeance, which is, like, common. And I would have preferred that at least. If you're going to use something so formulaic, give us a little more of the formulaic. Just stick with it. I will say... Reading this is actually important because you do need to know that Lorna does call Beast to go investigate why the X-Men aren't picking up. That's actually really important. Outside of that, you don't even need to read the rest of this issue. 
It's a really good point because I had never known when Beast got involved with this. I've read these Uncannies before, but I'd never read these Marvel team-ups. One of the things I've loved the most about this project with Jonah is an opportunity to find out things I didn't understand about the way these narratives come together and form the bigger picture. It's why we took so much time off to do the back issue bin. It is much nicer to be back in Uncanny X-Men. That said, we have an episode of Uncanny X-Men coming up that is entirely uncanny. So for those of you who have been getting real tired of the segues elsewhere, don't worry, we've got a few weeks of clear issues coming up. Jonah, it's been so nice returning to 1407 Gray Malkin Lane with you. It has been great to come back to what the show started as. I've loved all of our jaunts around the Marvel Universe with our incredible co-hosts. But the heart of the show was Jonah and I checking out Nightcrawler and his adventures, so it feels good to be back. Until you're back on the podcast, Jonah, where can all your fans find you? If you would like to find me and interact with me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah Rubino and at Jonah.Rubino, respectively. Nico, I've enjoyed this journey so much, and I'm so glad to be home. Where can people find you? You can check out my awesome music project, Action Duo, at Facebook.com slash Action Duo, where I make throwback R&B with my buddy Adam. You can check out Kid Riot, The Riot Squad, and Capes and Boots, our hyper-inclusive comics, at KidRiotComics.com, as well as other podcasts on this amazing network. I'm on Now and Again with Chris, my best buddy, checking out Now That's What I Call Music, as well as MCU.HTML, where my husband Kevo and I examine the Marvel Cinematic Universe piece by piece, looking for all the different ways the web comes together. Don't forget to check out the other episodes of X's for Podcast, like The Champions featuring Kyle and Captain Britain featuring that aforementioned amazing husband of mine. Don't forget the other shows on the network that aren't just starring me, although I don't know why you'd turn on any show that doesn't star me. And check out the Patreon. Give back a little bit if you're enjoying the shows and let us know what we can do to make these better for you guys. So until that happens, we're going to check you guys out on the other side of the X-Gene. See ya, everyone.